0: Good evening. Peace be with you. All right, great to be with you this evening. As some of you may know, I've been uh, just kind of around different places um, for the past several weeks uh, at different times. I've been out of the country and some things like that. And done dozens of sermons and academic lectures at other places. And I'll just tell you with complete honesty... Y'all are my favorite people to be with, and I really mean that. So you are my favorite people. You're the people that I love and that I want to give my best to uh, in, all, in all that I'm doing. It's just great to be back and preaching with you again. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Timothy Jones. I'm one of the pastors that serves here at Sojourn Community Church in Midtown. Well, I, I grew up in a, in a series of small fundamentalist churches. Now, some of you may have been raised in, in similar environments to this. And, and if you was like what I was raised in, there were, there were three primary priorities in these churches and they were these, men's hair better stay short, Women's dresses better stay long and don't listen to rock music, okay? That was pretty much the the whole creed that we had of the priorities and the values we had in some of these churches. And I thought often, it's a wonder, any faith survives some of these churches. But particularly, I think of the songs that we sang in children's church in some of these churches. I'm going to read you the lyrics of, of a few of these. Give me gas in my Ford, keep me trucking for the Lord, keep me trucking till the break of day. Anybody ever, anybody sing that in children's church at some point? A couple of you have had that inflicted upon you. Oh, you can't get to heaven on roller skates because you'd roll right by those pearly gates. You can't get to heaven on a pogo stick because all that jumping would make you sick. I don't even know what the point of these songs are. It's a wonder anyone's faith can survive songs like that. But there were, there were other songs too that were well intended, that were less ridiculous than those, but had an equally uh, corrosive effect, negative effect on my faith, I think, and maybe even more so. It'd be like this one right here, one that you probably do know. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart, down in my heart to stay. And I'm so happy, so very happy, from which I got the idea that joy and happy were basically the same thing. But there was another one, too. I remember there was a certain song that we would sing at church, or at school, rather. In the school, I would go to, and we'd sing it this way. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. Some of you done that, haven't you? You know this one, okay? But then I would go to church, and we would sing, if you're saved and you know it, clap your hands. Same thing at that point. From which I got the idea, picked it up, that to be happy and to be saved are basically the same thing and that happiness and joy are the same thing. And the idea that you kind of pick up from that is that if you're a Christian, you ought to be happy and happiness is the same as joy. I grew older and realized that that's not really the way any of us are able to live. And I became a pastor. And one of the things I recognized as a pastor was this, That this idea of the always happy Christian, what it does and what it actually produces in us and in our communities, is these places where we put on these fake, false masks in which we act like we have it all together, but inside we are broken, we are sad, and I found people that that was happening to, and I found that that happened in me, and it happens in you. You see, we're not made to live as always happy. Christians aren't called to constant happiness. What we are called to is not a constant happiness, but a life of joy. Now, joy is one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. And over nine weeks, we're looking at each one of these aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, these nine characteristics of a life that is lived in step with God's Spirit. Last week, it was love, and this week, it is joy. I want you to understand that a Jesus kind of joy is not happiness. Now, I'm not saying happiness is bad. Be as happy as you can be. But I'm just saying it's not joy. It's not the same thing as joy. Joy and happiness are different things. Because you see, happiness, that's a pleasant feeling you have when things go the way you'd hoped or planned. That's happiness. It's a pleasant feeling. Things go the way you'd hoped. Things go the way you'd planned. It's pleasant. It's nice, but it's based on your circumstances. But joy, joy is not based on your circumstances. Joy is receiving each moment of life as a gift, even when it wasn't the gift you wanted or expected. That's joy. That's joy. Joy. And you see, the opposite of joy isn't sadness or sorrow. The opposite of joy is grumbling and complaining. We see that in Philippians chapter two. Philippians is a letter of Paul. And in the second chapter of that book, Paul, at one point, he says to the Philippians, he said, leave behind, turn away from, in verse 14 of chapter two, he says, turn away from grumbling and complaining and arguing. But then look what he goes and says as the alternative to that. He says, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice. And I want you to be glad and I want you to rejoice as well. Do you see what Paul sets up as the alternative or the opposite to grumbling and arguing? It's joy and gladness. Now, Paul thinks at this point, it's clear from the text, he thinks he is about to be executed for his faith. Paul is not happy at this point, I don't think. I don't think Paul is saying, yes, I'm going to die for my faith. It's what I always wanted. That's not what Paul is saying. But he is joyful and he is glad. Why and how? Well, it's because joy is receiving every circumstance as a gift, even if it wasn't the gift you expected or wanted. Well, let's be honest with one another. Practicing joy is hard. Practicing joy is really difficult. And yet God has promised us joy in Jesus Christ. Jesus said to his disciples at one point, I've told you these things, so my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. And that's a truth that I need to hear. You see, some sermons I'm speaking to you. Other sermons I am struggling with you. This is category two, okay? This is the struggling with you sermon. Because I like plans. Does anybody else like plans? I like plans a lot. I like detailed plans that go for a long ways forward. And I like everything to go according to my plan. And if you want to mess with me, you mess with my plan. And then everything goes at that point. And I need, I am growing in the capacity to be able to pray in the morning, God, today will not go according to my plan. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Help me to receive every circumstance as a gift, even if it doesn't fit my plans. But how do we do this? How do we develop this capacity for the joy that God has promised? Well, part of it is in these words of Jesus in John chapter 16. But before we read this text, I want to set up this scene for you. You see, Jesus taught these words on the night on which he was betrayed. And that night had begun in an upper room where he'd shared a meal with his disciples. He washed the disciples' feet, knowing full well that they were going to fail him. And after the meal, Judah slipped out into the night to betray him. And then he walks with his disciples into the streets of Jerusalem. And he's teaching as he is walking with them in the streets of Jerusalem, his hands still damp from washing their feet. And he teaches as he walks. And this is Passover weekend in Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem's equivalent of the Kentucky Derby because everybody is coming to Jerusalem. Airbnb Jerusalem has done a booming business this particular week because everybody has come to Jerusalem and every little corner of every house is filled and they smell the fragrance of lambs cooking on open fires throughout the city. And what we find that Jesus is doing here, he tells us in John 13 and verse one, where it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In these chapters, Jesus is loving his disciples. That's what he's up to. That's what he's doing. He is loving his disciples to the very end. Remember that this is his darkest night. In a few hours, he will be naked and spiked upon a cross. And right now there is one friend that is preparing to betray him. There is one that will soon deny him and everyone will forsake him. And yet he loves them to the end and he teaches them how he will turn sorrow into joy. So turn in your Bibles if you have them with you or read from the screen if you don't. John chapter 16 and verse 16. Let's stand together in honor of the reading of God's word. John chapter 16 and verse 16. These are the words of Jesus spoken to his disciples. He says, a little while and you'll no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And some of his disciples said to one another, what is this he's telling us? A little while and you won't see me and a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father? And they said, what is this he's saying? A little while, we don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew they wanted to ask him, and so he said to them, are you asking one another about what, what I said a little while and you will not see me again a little while and you will see me? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our God, this text leaves us with questions, and yet it leads us to joy. And let us, as we read your word, let it, even when it leaves us with questions, let it lead us to joy. Open our minds and our hearts to your joy this day, that you may be glorified. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. By this time the next night, Jesus will be laying in a tomb, his body dead and cold in a borrowed tomb, and his followers, they will be waiting. They will be waiting, not completely certain of what has happened and joy will be difficult for them as it would be for us because God's presence doesn't seem near to them. And Jesus says here, it will only be a little while and it will only be a little while, but it will seem to them like a very long while as they wait and wonder before Jesus is raised from the dead. And that's a preparation for another little while. And that is the little while, comparatively speaking, between the time that Jesus ascended into the heavens and when he will come again, that is the little while in which you and I live right now. They were practicing for that by waiting, even in the times when God's presence did not seem near. And I love how the disciples respond when Jesus says all of this. It's one of my favorite statements in all the gospels. It says, we don't know what he's talking about. Don't you love that text? I love that because of the fact that it is so bluntly honest. And I imagine them as they're walking beside Jesus. You don't see, I don't know what he's talking about. What do we miss? And they're talking to one another. And he hears them whispering, wondering, what is he talking about? And the reason I like this is because haven't you had those times when you read a particular scripture and you said, I have no clue what he's talking about? (laughs) Have you had that happen? Or something happens in your life to you and you cry out and you say, God, I have no idea what you're doing. And that's what the disciples are saying here. I don't know what you're talking about. Now, at one time when I used to preach this in times of the past, I emphasized the disciples, kind of their denseness at this point. And don't get me wrong, the disciples are dense. They clearly are. But it occurred to me as I read at this time, that the disciples aren't the only problem here. Because if you really read what Jesus says, he really isn't very clear. Like Jesus isn't very clear. He says to them, now you see me, now you don't, you'll see me again. And I'm wondering, is he teaching us about God or is he teaching us the rules to hide and go seek? I'm not really sure on which one he's actually doing at this point. You'll see me and then you don't see me. I'll count to 20 and you'll see me again. That's, something, that's what it sounds like. And it's no wonder that the disciples said, we don't know what he's saying. And something struck me that had not occurred to me before. And that is that Jesus's lack of clarity is not a mistake. It is an act of grace. Imagine for a moment. What if Jesus had revealed all the triumphs that the church and that Christianity would face in the impending centuries? What if he had said to them and, and told them that, you know what, within three centuries, Christianity will have survived and grown even under persecution. And within three centuries, it will be the dominant religious group in the Roman Empire. What if he would have told them that 2,000 years from right now, what if he would have said there will be billions of Christians around the globe that will be worshiping me and they will be reading the writings that some of you wrote? What would the disciples have done? Oh, wow. Wow that's pretty amazing. We, we are great guys. We've done well. We, we are just, we are really absolutely, I can't believe that Jesus was lucky enough to get us as his disciples. That's what they would have thought at that point. But what if on the other hand, Jesus would have told them all the tragedies that they were going to face? the less from, less than 40 years from this moment, Emperor Nero would be dipping Christians in wax and putting them up on stakes in his backyard for them to be burned alive to light his revelries at night. What if you told them that? What if you told them that within 40 years, Peter will be crucified, John will be exiled, that the brother of Jesus James will have been executed as well? What if 2,000 years later that he would have told them that at least 10,000 Christians a year will be being killed for their faith. What if you had told them that? Well, they'd been terrified and they would have been crushed at that moment. But Jesus revealed to them precisely what they were able to handle at that time. And that's what he does for you, and that's what he does for me. You have those moments in your life where you say, God, I don't know what you're doing. Those moments in your life that say, God, I don't know what you're saying. I don't get it. It is not a mistake. It is an act of grace. God allows us to understand enough for the moment that we are in. Hear that. I look at my life. I think, what if when I was a teenager, I was a kid growing up in trailer parks. Neither of my parents finished high school. I had not the foggiest idea of what you would do to go to college. What if somebody was said to me, you're going to be traveling all around the world and you're going to be teaching at some point in the future? What would that have done to me? It would have filled me up with pride and arrogance about that, that I'm going to get out of this. I'm going to, I'm going to do something bigger. But if somebody also would have told me all the tragedies that I would walk through on the way, that I'd watch my father die over months of brain cancer, facing infertility and that we'd face depression and losing children we loved, What if God had said, you're going to go through all that? What if God would have said that to me? Then I would have been crushed and terrified by that. God lets us know what we're able to handle in the moment we're in. And look at your life. Think of the triumphs and the tragedies in your life and recognize that you couldn't have handled knowing all those at once. And neither could the disciples understand and know that. God allows us to know enough for us to take the next step. We see what's happening in our lives through a glass darkly and that darkness itself is an act of God's grace. And that's what happened to the first disciples in this text. They said, why? We don't remember. We don't understand what's going on. We don't get this. And Jesus loved them by telling them only what they were able to handle in the moment they were in. And Jesus loves you the same way. There is far more going on in your life and mine than we can see or understand or handle in any given moment. And recognizing that is essential to practicing joy. When you don't understand what's going on in your life, it's not God's mistake. It's an act of grace. Then Jesus goes on and unpacks instructions about joy, beginning in verse 20. Hear this, beginning in verse 20 of chapter 16. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, you will weep and you will mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she's given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person's been brought into the world. So you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take away your joy from you. Now remember, as Jesus spoke these words, the privileged and the powerful were joining forces to have him hanged from a tree because he was a threat to their systems. And when he died, those in power would rejoice at his death and his disciples would weep and mourn. And know this, recognize it. Jesus never criticizes their sorrow. He doesn't say, hey guys, I'm back in three days. Don't worry about it. Don't weep, don't mourn, don't cry. Don't grieve for me at all. I'm back in three days. Jesus does not say that. He clearly communicates to them, you're going to weep and you're going to mourn. And Jesus gives them space for their sorrow. You see, what we understand in this is that Jesus provides this space, but he promises them that their sorrow will not last forever. You see, what that reveals is that sorrow is not the opposite of joy. Many times in our lives, sorrow is part of the pathway that leads us to joy. You see what he's saying right here? That here sorrow gives birth to joy. Now Jesus makes it clear as well that that's only true because of what God did in raising Jesus from the dead. Apart from the resurrection of Jesus, there is no hope for our sorrow turning into joy. None. And never forget and never lose the wonder and the awe in your heart that central to the Christian faith is this truth. That on that Sunday morning when Jesus lay in the tomb, that warmth began to spread through his cold heart. And the blood began to flow through a nail-pierced wrist. Cells were reactivated. A blood-crested eyelid began to flutter. And melanin and living color filled his flesh anew. And he walked out of the grave alive and well. And that is what is central. And without that, there is no hope of sorrow turning into joy. But because of the resurrection, Jesus makes it clear that their sorrow will be turned to joy. And the metaphor that Jesus chooses to describe this is that of a woman giving birth. Now, I'll admit, I've never personally given birth, ever. Never done that. But those who have, assure me that there is a significant degree of discomfort involved in the process. And Jesus in this says that she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy. Now, he's not saying that she forgets the fact of the pain. That's not it at all. It's simply what he's saying is that the joy of new life outweighs the pain and makes the pain worth it in light of the life that is to come. And that is the power of the resurrection of Jesus that the tomb of darkness and death becomes a womb filled with life and joy. And Jesus bursts alive from that tomb. And because of that, the disciples' grief will be turned into joy. And that joy isn't just for the distant future, often sometime when Jesus returns again. He says, this joy will be given to you and this joy that you have, no one will be able to take it away. Now, you first read that, that's pretty ridiculous. That's a pretty ridiculous claim he's making when you realize several of these men he is talking to will die for their faith in Jesus. How can he say there's a joy that you're going to receive that no one can take away? Well, that's because joy isn't dependent on circumstances. And it recognizes that there is no sorrow so deep that God cannot turn it into triumph. Sometimes that turning happens in this life. Sometimes that turning happens in the next, but the resurrection guarantees it will happen that our sorrow is never the final word because we serve a God who can turn a tomb into a womb, a grave into a groove, our hurt into a harvest, and our sorrow into joy. In the resurrection of Jesus, the devil's worst becomes God's best. And if God can turn that, the worst of sorrows into joy, he can turn yours and he can turn mine as well. See, the resurrection of Jesus, it calls us away from complaining and bitterness, and it opens the door to joy. Now, that sounds great, and it is great, but I find myself still struggling with how exactly do we do this? How do we do this? Because you can't just wake up one morning and say, today is my joy day. I am going to be joyful from now on. I'm going to have joy, joy, joy all day today and it lasts until you realize there's no coffee and they just wanna kill everybody again. That's just the way life works at that point. We can't just decide that we are going to have joy. And it's not because joy isn't available. It's because God didn't create us as, as brains spiked on top of a skeleton that think that never feel. That's not how God made us. We are these complex beings of hormones and cells and habits and motives and yearnings that none of us fully understand what is going on inside of us. We just don't. We don't know what all's going on. And so, how do we develop the habit and the discipline of joy? We develop certain attitudes and actions in our lives that we do them over and over and over, even when it's hard, so that it eventually reshapes our souls. We call those disciplines is what we do. Now hear me carefully. When we do certain disciplines, repeated actions that will develop and shape our souls in different ways, then God does not love you anymore because you do those. Hear me carefully. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God's verdict and his perspective on you has already been settled once and for all in Jesus. And whenever God looks at you, he doesn't see how good you're doing or how bad you're doing. He sees that you have trusted in Jesus and he sees you in Jesus and God the Father can never think anything less of you than he thinks of Jesus. Know that. It doesn't make God love you more, but it does help you love him more that's what it does. It helps you to love him more. And how do we do that? I want to suggest three different ways that help us abide in Christ. We use that terminology, sometimes this churchy terminology, abide in Christ. And it sounds kind of weird, kind of voodoo-y type thing and, and odd, mystical. It's not. It sounds like, you know, you will abide in Christ, something like that. I don't mean it that way. Abiding in Christ is just being connected with Jesus at the deepest level of who you are. That's it. It's being connected with Jesus at the deepest level of who you are. And I want to suggest three patterns you can build into your life that will help you abide in Christ, be connected to him, to develop some new perspectives and disciplines to shape our souls, to be able to receive joy. The first one of these is make space for your sorrow. You may be thinking, I thought this sermon was about joy. And you just said, make space for your sorrow. How are those connected? I want to suggest that those are very deeply connected. You see, Jesus never downplays their impending grief. And instead, he makes deliberate space for their sorrow. You will for a time grieve and have sorrow. Not only that, but later on this very evening, Jesus will make space for his own sadness and sorrow and grief. Do you remember when he goes into the garden and he steps away from them and he falls on his face and he says, Father, take this cup from me if it is possible. What's happening? Jesus is making space for his sadness in that moment. And there are places in your life and there are places in mine where people have sinned against us, have hurt us, have even abused or wounded or exploited us, that sometimes we just want to push it all down and we've never taken the time just to be sad about it, just to be broken and sad and sorrowful about it. And over time, week by week by week, we cover it up and we push it down and the result eventually is hate and anger and bitterness in us that we can't even control because we never made space to be sad and made space for sorrow. Jesus did. Jesus did. There's a place and there's a reason and there's a time for us even to sometimes to be angry, to lament and to be broken over the ways we have been sinned against or we have sinned against others or as we look around us at the systemic injustices we see in our world. There's a place to say, I want to make space to be sad about this. I need to be sad. Now, what makes this different from grumbling about our circumstances When you make space to be sad, you're saying in that my sadness, my sorrow is not the final word. The resurrection of Jesus is the final word. I am making space for this, believing and knowing that on the other side of this, there is joy. You make deliberate space for it and take the time for it to deal with the things going on in your soul. It's what I like to call confident sadness. Confident sadness. I'm saying, I'm sorrowful, I'm sad, but I am confident in God's power through his resurrection. I believe that my brokenness is not the final word. And I want us to be a place, a church, where somebody says, how you doing? And you can say, I'm confidently sad today. And that's okay. You have the space to say that and to say, I'm confidently sad. There's a pastor named Gardner-Taylor who once spoke these words, he said, there are days when we can bring before God a deep and glad laughter of joy and gratitude, but there will be other days when all we can muster is a bitter, angry complaint. If it is honest, be confident that God will make it serve his purpose and our good. And if that's you, do it. Make the space for sadness in your life, but make it with confidence That your sadness is not the final word. Make space in your life for sadness. The second thing I want you to work into your life, into your attitudes, is when you don't understand what God is doing, believe and live as if it's not a mistake, but an act of grace. There's a woman that uh, wrote an autobiography entitled The Hiding Place. Her name is Corrie ten Boom. And her family, most of her family died after guarding Jews in in Holland during World War II from Hitler. And she wrote this autobiography called The Hiding Place, and she told about an incident when she was a little girl. And she asked her father a question that she wasn't yet prepared for the full answer to that question. She wasn't ready for it yet. He was a watchmaker. And he pointed to his satchel full of metal pieces and watches, just this big satchel. And he said, Corey, pick that up and carry it off the train. And she went and she tugged at it and she couldn't even move it, couldn't budge it, couldn't pick it up at all. And she said, "I I can't carry it. And he said, yes. And it would be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. It's the same way with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy. When you're older and stronger, you can bear it. For now you must trust me to carry it for you. And there are truths about your life that are too heavy for you to carry right now. They're just too heavy. And instead of being frustrated or angry that God is not answering, why did this happen? Why is this going on? Trust that as an act of grace in which God is saying, Trust me to carry it for you right now. Trust me to carry it for you. Last one, always be on the lookout for resurrection. And here's what I mean by that. We as Christians believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ fundamentally changed everything such that beneath the surface of what we see, God is at work through his resurrection power, renewing things in ways that we may never see. Beneath the surface of the disciples' sorrow in an empty tomb, there was a resurrection coming. And beneath the surface of your sorrow, your sadness, your brokenness, God is up to far more than you know or than you see. So be on the lookout Where is God at work beneath the surface in ways I may not have expected? And always look for that. In the Middle Ages, the official motto of the country of Spain was non plus ultra. Non plus ultra. Latin for nothing more beyond And they said that because they believed that as they stood on that western coast of Spain at that northwest corner, looking out at the Atlantic Ocean, that there was nothing more beyond Spain. There was nothing we know better now. There was much beyond there. But they were in essence saying there is nothing more beyond what we can see. And I sometimes look at my life that way, and so do you. We look at our life and we see our circumstances. We say non plus ultra nothing more beyond what I see. But always, God is at work beneath the surface in ways you can't see. You may be a parent and you're spending all day, every day with preschoolers and you're fairly certain they're demon-possessed. And it's just that your life seems like a constant daily grind of do this, don't do this, don't, stop, 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 don't, don't, no, stop. That seems what, what you're doing all the time. Think, where is any meaning in this? But look carefully at the gift of these children, at what God is doing in ways you may not see. I I feel like you're stuck in a job where there's just nothing happening and no chance to move forward or advancement of any kind and no purpose in what you're doing. Look carefully. What might God be doing beneath the surface of what you see? It may be that you're just in pain right now. You wonder, what is God doing in this? Look beneath the surface to see what God might be up to. See, I look at you, and as I look out across you, I see a lot of ordinary people, and you look at me and see just an ordinary person. And yet we believe, even if we forget it sometimes, that God by his resurrection power, is at work in every believer in Jesus Christ in ways that we cannot see. And would help if we looked at one another that way. Because do you know what that would fill us with? If we started looking at one another in that way? The joy, 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 joy down in my heart, down in my heart to stay. But not just any kind of joy, a Jesus kind joy of joy. That's what it would fill us with. Well, on that night when he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said to his disciples, this is my body that is broken for you. And in the same way, he took a cup after supper and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. And we celebrate in this meal the joy that Jesus brings to us. So the way we do this at Sojourn is we tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the juice or the wine. The wine is marked with twine. And we invite you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ who's been baptized, we invite you to partake in this meal with us. We invite you join with us in this meal. Take this meal with us. If if you're not a believer in Jesus yet, What we ask you, we invite you, is take Jesus. Today, this evening, trust in Jesus. Turn to him as the only way to be made right with God, the risen Lord Jesus. And come talk to us. We'd love to prepare you for you to be able to participate with us at a future time. Because we don't want you to have the meal and miss the meaning of the meal. As we take communion, if you're in the front half of the room, come to the front. In the back half of the room, go to the back. There's gluten free elements to my left, your right. Let's gather together and look and see in one another and in what God is doing here resurrection power beneath what we see that brings joy in our hearts. Let's pray.